If you've booked yourself air travel, you probably had to make some decisions about layovers. Too short, you risk missing your connecting flight. Too long, you're wasting time in a monotonous airport terminal with weird smelling carpet. I remember on our first trip to Columbia, it was out of LAX, and we left the day of the 2013 shooting there. As we were on the grapevine, our phones started lighting up and telling us what was going on. All our flights got screwed up naturally, and so we ended up having something like a 13-hour layover in Bogota. And we were a little bit nervous about being in Colombia for the first time, and people had kept telling us that we were going to end up in a tiger cage in the jungle, and so... So we were a little bit worried about like going out of the airport and coming back in. And so we decided to wait it out at the gate. And it was a domestic gate because we were flying further into the country. And so there was no internet, no shops, no anything in that part of the terminal. It was just a really long wait. On the other hand, sometimes a layover can be a good opportunity. One site I consulted promises that if you have at least an eight hour layover in Beijing, then you have enough time to go and see the Great Wall of China. I don't know. I think that cuts it pretty close. I've seen traffic in those parts of the world. Isn't China the place where they have like 30 days straight of traffic in certain, certain places? Anyway, even then, the best laid plans will sometimes fail. My wife can tell you the story of when she was studying abroad and planned to stop for a little less than a day with her group in Venice, but through a series of events, she and her group ended up just scared, confused, and never seeing a single canal the whole night that they were there. Now, speaking of LAX, everyone's favorite airport, it's actually listed as one of the worst airports to spend a layover. While Time Magazine picks Atlanta's international airport as one of the best worldwide, along with the Munich Airport, the Hong Kong International Airport, and the Hamad International Airport in Qatar. I don't know about that. Now, Paul's destination is Rome. That's where he's headed. He has a divine appointment there to preach the gospel to Caesar Nero. That's a job. Man, we can't wait for him to get there. What could be more important than that? Well, it turns out God had some important work for Paul and his friends to accomplish on the tiny little nothing island of Malta. And so the Lord gives them a layover there, a three-month layover, in fact. During their stay, we see a wide range of experiences. They start off cold and wet on a beach, and later they're being entertained in the lap of luxury by the governor of the island. At first, Paul is seen as a murderer, and he's attacked by a snake. Later, he's being honored with gifts and thanks for his ministry. It's quite a stop especially when we remember that none of the people on that Alexandrian ship had wanted to stop there. None of them, not even Paul. Paul had suggested they stay in Fair Havens for the winter and then make for Rome after. The sailors wanted to get to Phoenix where there was nightlife and winter there. All along, God had his own plan, and that plan was full of opportunities for his people to glorify him and make an eternal difference in the world. Now, we are each of us en route to a final destination in this life. As a Christian, you're on your way to the final destination of the new Jerusalem. As we go, we're going to find ourselves at various layovers. Some of them are planned. Others are unexpected. Some are fun. Others are downright uncomfortable. Our experiences won't always be pleasant, but Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus show us how we can always be content, how we can avoid some common pitfalls and how there is always opportunity to do the Lord's work as we faithfully follow him. So let's begin in verse one of Acts 28, 
Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. There were 276 passengers on the ship. Every last one of them made it to the shore. They had spent weeks in a terrible storm before wrecking, but already you can kind of read Luke's optimism there on the page. Safely ashore, had some of the non-believing sailors and merchants uh, there on the beach been looking over his shoulder as he took notes, they might have said, safely? That's a relative term, isn't it? (laughs) After all, they had no ship, no supplies, no shelter, and at first, no idea where they were. Now, we're gonna see the Christians were calm and at peace throughout this passage. They weren't fretting or fussing, but they were confident in the Lord's provision for them, even when all of their earthly provisions had been washed into the sea. The Lord still had not left them, still had not abandoned them, and they knew it, and they lived like they knew it. Malta is an island just about 17 miles long and nine miles wide. It sits beneath Sicily. The fact that they made it to this little, tiny, relatively spot in the ocean uh, is a testament to God's precise providence. To get this ship that is hundreds of miles off course and at its very breaking point, the last time we were together in the book of Acts, we saw that the ship is breaking apart and they're doing all they can to just keep the thing from capsizing. The fact that God could get this ship so many miles off course, completely blind in the storm and get everybody onto this Island, not just some piece of land, but an inhabited piece of land, small as it was, this is God's precise providence. When God wants something done, nothing can stop him. Not wind or waves, not odds or obstacles. He will have his way. And though we do not know every pit stop or waylay that lies lies ahead for us, of this we can be absolutely sure, our God is going to bring us safely to shore, right? Now, we look forward to the ultimate uh, crossing from through death into eternal life. And, and we can be sure as Christians that God will bring us safely to shore. Every last one of his people is going to make it through. No casualties that are going to slip through his fingers and say, well, we got most of them. You know, uh, no, we're going to make it safely to shore. Verse two, the local people showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. The islanders here showed unusual compassion to these weary foreign castaways. Rather than coming down to loot the wreck, which you might expect in a situation like this, they came ready to assist any survivors they might find, and they found a whole bunch of them. In fact, throughout this story, we're going to find that the people of Malta were kind and generous and had a sense of morality even. But they still absolutely needed the gospel. They needed the gospel just as much as, say, the demon-possessed girl who had the spirit of Nehushtan in her, you know, a bunch of chapters ago. They both equally needed the gospel. They both needed to be saved. It's important for us to remind ourselves that even, quote-unquote, good people need to get saved. Jesus Christ says, you must be saved. You must be born again. He told that to Nicodemus, one of the most you know, righteous people in the entire nation, the teacher of teachers, right? A man who had dedicated his life to trying to live in an upright way and trying to live spiritually. And Jesus said to him, man, you, you, gotta, you gotta be born again. It doesn't matter that you're pretty good. You're still in a bunch of trouble. And he preached the gospel to him. This is one of the hazards of what is called the social gospel. 
Ultimately, the social gospel suggests that the end goal of life is some sort of temporal goodness verified by behavior that is considered virtuous by the popular culture at the time. But the problem is that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And it doesn't matter if your wool is a little cleaner than some other sheep on the hillside. It's a question of whether you're in the fold of God and following the shepherd or not. Right? So you can say, well, I have the cleanest wool in all of the hill, you know, in all of the mountain range. He says, yeah, but you've gone astray and you need to be saved just like the, the worst sheep of the bunch. At the same time, it is easy for Christians to sometimes think always only the worst of unbelievers when in reality there are some good and decent people out there. Their need, though, is still urgent and intense, but... Not everyone out there is as bad as they could be, right? And we don't need to treat people or think of people as being just everybody out there who's not a Christian is the worst person in the world. Hey, they're in desperate need of salvation. No mistake about that. But there are some good and decent people out there. I mean, compare the islanders to the unbelieving Romans in this whole story. The soldiers had planned to just slaughter all the prisoners on board before they made for shore. Uh, in case they escaped the wreck, right? They said, we're just gonna kill all these dudes. And the centurion wanting to save Paul says, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, as opposed to the, the, the natives here, they were ready to help and not just help important people, not just help the people with swords. They were ready to help sailors and soldiers and merchants and criminals alike. Everybody needed help and they were ready to give it. You know, God loves compassion like this. Small acts of kindness are really important to him. Uh, it's a pretty dramatic thing that God says, hey, you gave me a cup of cool water and that counts on the eternal level. And they said, Lord, when do we do this? He says, when you gave it to one of these, my brethren, I counted that. I counted that as an eternal work and I put it into your account. I'm gonna reward you for it. God cares about small acts of kindness and compassion. And he brings us, his people, into contact with particular other people at particular times so that we can not only preach to them about salvation, but also show the love of God to them through tangible acts of grace, the way that Jesus did and the way that we see uh, the Christians in the book of Acts always behaving. Verse three, as Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. There are hundreds of people around, but Paul sees himself still as a servant. He's drenched to the bone. He's now gone through his fourth shipwreck at least. And though he was the one reason they were all alive, right? Remember from last time, yet he put his shoulder to the work. He said, okay, there's work to be done. He wasn't gonna take a break. And what a great example to us of just keeping a servant-hearted mindset and saying, okay, what needs to be done? I can help with that. I'm worn out, I'm soaked, I can pick up some sticks and help out. But then he's attacked by a venomous snake. What's up with that? Why would God allow this to happen while Paul was serving him? You know, bad things happen to God's people all the time. While our Lord promised to never leave us, he never said we would be without trouble or suffering. In fact, he said quite the opposite is gonna be true. He says, count on it, count on trouble, count on difficulty, count on obstacles, they're coming. Especially if you serve me, you're going to face trouble, but to be of good cheer because the Lord Jesus has overcome the world and overcome all of that trouble. But really, what gives? Really, you just miraculously saved all of us through this storm after weeks and weeks. We didn't lose one hair of our heads 
and I get on the shore and I pick up sticks and all of a sudden a viper bites me. What's up with that? We can become frustrated when we try to honor God or serve him and then encounter some kind of difficulty or trial. It feels unfair. But the truth is serving God sometimes is what flushes out attacks from the enemy or, or from uh, you know, situations around us. We've seen that many times in the book of Acts, right? Christians just trying to honor the Lord, trying to serve the Lord, trying to help other people. And what's the response? They're attacked. They're set upon. They're chased out of town. They're lied about. They're you know, mistreated. They're beaten. All of these sort of things. And you think, what, what were the apostles doing? Were they causing trouble? They weren't causing trouble at all. They were walking up to people and saying, hey, the God of the universe knows you and made you and loves you and wants to save you from the guilt of your sin and give you a new life. We better kill those people. Grab a pitchfork and a torch. Let's run them out of town. Let's beat them within an inch of their lives. Let's kill them and then kill everyone around them. And so sometimes serving the Lord actually flushes out attacks. Think of the Old Testament prophets, the same thing is true. Think of Jesus himself. He's just trying to save people from their sins, heal them of their diseases, bring people back from the dead. And the response is the leaders of the nation conspire to kill him. And that doesn't even count the times when the enemy is just trying to sabotage the work of God, right? I mean, so there's all of these forces that we're wrestling against. Uh, you know, powers and principalities that are against the work of God. And there's all of these different elements going on and people's jealousies. That was a big driving factor in a lot of the persecution, whether it's uh, the jealousy of the Sadducees in the book of Acts or the jealousy of the Pharisees in the gospel. All of these things that are flushed out as people serve God and honor God and put God first and do his work. A lot of times that brings on uh, difficulty and obstacle and attacks and those sorts of things. Now, skeptics will say that Malta has no venomous vipers, and so the Bible must not be accurate in this case or in any case. Our answer is that there is historical account of snakes like this, even up into the 1800s. And the reason we don't find vipers in Malta today is the same reason we don't find buffalo on the Great Plains, wolves in Sicily, or tigers in Tasmania. I didn't know there was a Sicilian wolf. I didn't know there was a ta Tasmanian tiger. In fact, those two animals went extinct in the last century. They made it through to like the 1920s and 30s. I've never even heard of them. If somebody said, are there tigers in Tasmania? I said, only on Looney Tunes, I think, you know, <laughs> only on like a cartoon. But certainly 2,000 years of history is enough time for a very tiny island, which is densely packed with people now, uh, to eradicate a snake population. So don't get freaked out when you are going on, you know, if you're reading on Wikipedia or you're reading some article and they say, and of course the book of Acts says there were vipers on Malta and there are no vipers on Malta and therefore you can't rely on scripture. There are wonderful archeological resources and answers for the skeptical questions that are faced to the Bible. You know, we don't have to be afraid of challenges to the Bible. This is an important thing for us to kind of internalize as Christians. We don't have to be afraid of questions people ask about the Bible or about our faith. You know why? Because the Bible is true. Uh, the Bible, God says, let God be true and every man a liar, right? And so if we know what is true, if the word of God is real and it is, if it is reliable and it is, if it's accurate and it is, then we don't have to be afraid when someone asks us a question about it. Even if it's a question of, hey, there seems to be an inconsistency, can we figure this out? And it doesn't matter if that's a genuine person asking you, hey, I heard about this, what do you think? 
or if it's some you know, swaggering so-called atheist trying to make a, you know, a big stink in front of everybody. You know, if you believe the truth, you don't have to be afraid of questions about the truth, right? As a dumbed down example, if somebody said, I don't believe that two plus two is four, I wanna ask you some questions about that. Are you really worried that you don't know that two and two is four? I can look at it right here and I can go one, two, three, four, right? So if somebody, if my child came up to me and said, hey, I have a question. This two plus two thing doesn't quite make sense to me. <laughs> or if some, hey, we're on the track now, right, where nothing is anything in our society anymore, right? Like when there, every, no word means anything, no measurement means anything, you know, we're dismantling sciences left and right. Eventually, somebody's gonna say, what is math? Math is a social construct, right? Are we worried when somebody says, I, I have questions about what two plus two means? No, we're not worried because we know that two plus two equals four. Now, that is a very simplistic way of illustrating that we don't have to be afraid when people ask us questions about the veracity of God's word. Now, we might not always have the answer. If somebody said, I did some research and everything I read said there have never been any snakes on Malta, what do we think about that? And if you don't know the answer, okay, then just say, you know, I, I don't have an answer to that right now. Let me look into it. That doesn't have to shatter your faith. You don't have to be worried that there's some hidden boogeyman, some wizard of Oz hiding behind the 66 books of the Bible, and one day it's all gonna come crashing down. Uh, the heaven and earth may pass away, but God's word is never going to pass away, and we can take such great comfort in that. Where are we? All right, verse four. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, this man no doubt is a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. For some reason, uh, for research on this, I, I watched a YouTube video where a guy purposefully has one of his snakes bite him so he can demonstrate how to delatch a snake. It was horrifying. And he just fully does it. He's just got this big old wound. Anybody know how to delatch a snake in the comfort of your home? Anybody know? Purell, you squeeze, you, you spray some uh, hand sanitizer on there and that snake just pops right off. I'm sure it's not a really good life for the snake after that, but anyway. So the islanders here assumed that Paul must have been bad because something bad happened to him, right? That seems like an easy calculus for us. Listen, we don't wanna let that kind of thinking grow in our minds. We also don't want bitterness or resentment toward God to take root when something bad happens to us. God made this happen to me. God let this happen to me, and now I'm mad about it. Uh, Paul doesn't do uh, either of those things. There were a lot of people around. Multiple witnesses saw what was happening to Paul, according to the text. I wonder if he had some fun with it. I, I think... Um, I think it's easy for us to sort of sterilize the characters of the Bible and, and make them a little bit more mechanical than they were. Paul's a real person, you know? I mean, even if you don't have a really great sense of humor, almost everybody has a sense of humor, right? Paul was the kind of man that was regularly beaten, regularly imprisoned, regularly shipwrecked. Uh, he's also having like face-to-face -face meetings with Jesus. I'm guessing he had a pretty good demeanor a lot of the time. Yeah, he says that his preaching was boring and other people said it about him too in the church at Corinth, but he's a guy and he's with his friends, Luke and Aristarchus, right? They're dear friends of his. And so I kind of wonder if he had fun with it. We're gonna be told in a moment he suffered no harm whatsoever. And so I wonder if maybe he kind of took a walk over to Luke and said, what do you think, doc? 
seemed to have a seemed to have some kind of snake hanging off of me. Maybe he was trying to remember the old rhyme that tells you which snakes are poisonous and which aren't. We were up in the mountains last week, and uh, the boys came across a snake of some kind. So we found a snake. So we go over there, and uh, the colors that it included, I'm colorblind, but I could nail this one, red, yellow, and black. So then we're kind of sitting there, it's kind of wigging out, and I say, okay, clear out, you know, and we're trying to go through the old, you know, the old, the old rhyme, red on yellow, kill a fellow, red on black, venom lack. Was it yellow on black? Like, I'm just, get my phone, I'm trying to look it up, and they're like, well, here's the deadly poisonous one, here's the one that's not poisonous. It's the same snake, I can't tell the difference at all. And so we went, you know, I said, all right, leave the snake alone. We wanna catch it, we're, okay, leave the snake alone. And we go back down, and there happened to be kind of a local around. And oh, that's the California whatever snake. It's fine. It don't even have any teeth. I said, well, let them bite you then. We'll see what happens. But So we see here that these natives, pagan though they were, had a moral law written on their hearts. They didn't know Jesus, but they had an internal sense of right and wrong, right? They said, this dude must have been a bad person. And therefore, fate or justice, this pagan god that they were thinking of, wasn't going to allow him to live. And they had an inkling that God was a god of justice, a god that will repay evildoers for what they've done. They were still wrong about Paul and wrong about God, but in some ways, these individuals were closer uh, to, to being right than our old, own culture is when it comes to right and wrong, right? To morality and justice. We live in a time where even basic historic understanding of right and wrong are being specifically dismantled all around us on all sorts of levels. It's shocking and it's a dismaying and it's a bad thing. In Isaiah 5, God said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light. The problem is men love darkness rather than the light. And you see this, you know, whether it's Isaiah or whether it's the book of Romans talking about, hey, here's what happens when societies turn their backs on God, then they're given over to a depraved mind. And here's how they embrace the darkness. And here's how they embrace what's evil instead of what's good. And here's how they twist the truth and all of those sorts of things. As God's people, as Christians, we need to pray a lot for our society and hold the line on God's truth and spread it around as much as we can. Verse five, but he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. A 2013 report found there were about 125 snake handling churches in the Appalachian states of the United States of America. Should we be taking up snakes and proving our reliance on the Lord? Snake handlers use this example as well as what Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 as a basis for their practices. Doesn't the text say believers will pick up snakes and they will not harm them? The response is very simple. Jesus' words in Mark were not a blanket promise. They were a prophecy, which is partly fulfilled in this very passage. Now, in addition, the Bible specifically commands us to not test the Lord our God and that it is evil to demand a miraculous sign from him. While the issue of snake handling is sort of silly and very easily answered, it does highlight and confront us with a bigger question. And here's that question. I read Mark 16 and it says, you'll take up snakes and you'll not be harmed. Well, can't, then, then I should have been able to tell my kids, just pick up that snake, doesn't matter if it's venomous or not. We believe in God, so you'll be fine. 
So the bigger question is this. Why is it that certain promises found in the Bible aren't our, always our experience as Christians, right? For example, didn't Jesus say in Luke 12 that God would feed us and clothe us and provide everything we need? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. He says, don't worry about what you're gonna eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Look at the lilies, look at the sparrows. All of these things are gonna be added unto you. Okay, it's a blanket promise. I'll always have enough food. I'll always have enough clothing. And every Christian everywhere will always have those things as long as they're seeking the Lord. Isn't that what we're reading? Or doesn't Proverbs promise that we will have a long life if we fear the Lord? I mean, that's a real question. These are real issues that come up. Why then was Paul so often hungry? Why was Stephen cut down in the prime of his life? Not to mention your and my own struggles. God's promises never fail, but we have to be very careful when it comes to which have been made to us in a blanket sense and which have not. In any given promise found in the word of God, there is a specific audience, a specific context, a specific timing in the mind of God. Sometimes as Christians, we play really fast and loose with biblical promises that weren't actually made to us. We gotta be careful about this. A lot of times, you know, it's usually around graduation time. You see the graduation announcement and a bunch of biblical promises get claimed that quite frankly, were not actually made to us as New Testament church era Christians, right? They were made to the nation of Israel. They were made to a different group, maybe the apostles or other individuals. Now, perhaps the, there are lots of principles that those promises reveal about how God deals with us and how God treats his people that could apply to our lives. But when we're looking at a specific promise, context is key and timing is key. We simply can't know exactly how God will fulfill his promises to us. What we can be sure of is that he is always true, that he cannot fail. Now we can fail and derail God's work in our lives for a time, like when the Israelites did so in the wilderness, derailed God's promise and plan for their lives for 40 years. They just did. He said, let's go into the promised land right now. They said, eh. And he said, all right, we'll wait around for 40 years. That happened. They derailed God's promises for a time. Even right now, we see that God's program, his plan for Israel is on hold and we're in the middle of the church age and the church age is gonna come to an end and then God is going to take back up his program with Israel. And he's going to finish that work that he began with them. We think of all sorts of Bible characters or think of the Israelites in the time of the judges. All of those very specific promises God had given Israel, here's what's gonna happen. Here's what's gonna happen with your fruit and with your land and with your fertility. None of you are gonna have diseases. All of this good stuff is gonna happen. Oh, you wanna worship the Baals now? All right, then you're gonna be over here serving Eglon and like getting food for him and paying him tribute for 18 years. That's what you're gonna be doing. And that happened again and again and again. Through faithlessness, and through disobedience, they derailed God's promises for their lives for a time. That's not God failing. That's not God going back on his promises. That's God's people removing themselves from his fold for a time. <clears throat> now, we can rest in our Lord knowing that he is doing a good work for us. There are general promises that are true that he who began a good work in you, that's every believer, will be faithful to complete it, right? 
We can misunderstand the Lord's promises sometimes like the disciples so often did in the gospels. After all, we see now as through a glass dimly, but we can rest in our Lord knowing that he is doing a good work for us and in us and through us. He will complete what he began. In the meantime, we're not to do stupid things like grab onto snakes to show that we're Christians. That's stupid and we shouldn't do it. You're not bulletproof. But here's the secret. At the same time, guns miraculously don't work sometimes. You wanna read stories like that from the modern era, read Dan Finfrock's Intensive Faith, where he talks about real stories where he was, where God told him, you need to go to this place and this jungle and talk to these people. He does, and like gorillas come and say, we're here to kill all the Christians, and they lined them up against the wall and went click, 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 and then they just left. I mean, so on the one hand, God, I'm not saying that God doesn't, have miraculous promises for his people. It's just, we gotta be careful about what we assume is a general all the time promise for us. And we certainly don't do things like snake handling, which are uh, an affront to other sections of the word of God, like thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. So what did Paul do here? Did he go looking for a snake to handle? No. Did he hand the viper to Luke and say, now you hold it, he won't bite you either. No, he didn't do that. He shook it off into the fire, note that, so it wouldn't bite anybody else. He was very casual, practical about it. And I'm sure he said some prayers for his hand. You know, it's not recorded, but on the one hand it says, hey, he suffered no harm, but I don't know if Paul knew he wasn't gonna suffer any harm. He might've thought, I, might, I guess I might be losing my hand now. I guess, you know, maybe the Lord, the Lord allowed me to be beat and allowed me to be stoned and I've been whipped all these times and scourged and I've been in prison and I've been naked and hungry and I've been robbed all these times. I wonder if God's gonna send me to Rome with one hand, how they're gonna shackle me. I only have one hand, right? But we don't see him freaking out. We don't see him angry. We don't see him resentful. He just says, okay, this is happening now. It's going to be content in all situations, no matter how many hands I have. Verse six, they expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. After they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he's a God. So is he a murderer or a deity? They went from being entirely wrong to being entirely wrong again in a new way. Humans aren't very good at reasoning sometimes. And it's kind of silly, but they illustrate for us what's true about humanity. Human beings need truth revealed to us, a truth that is fixed to an unchangeable standard. Thank God he has provided that in his word. His word is the standard. His word is the line drawn in the sand of what is true. Not culture, not popularity, not opinion, not any of these other things, but God's revealed word is what's true. It says they expected him to drop dead Seems they were following Paul around, watching with anticipation. Philippians 3.20 tells us as Christians that we are to go through life eagerly watching for the Savior. Anybody watching The Chosen or familiar with The Chosen? So like the, the problem is they said, okay, season two is gonna start on Easter, right? And it did, but that was only one episode. So I thought, okay, well then next week or the next day, they'll have another episode. They said, well, it'll come out when it comes out. We're editing it, we're working. So I'm like, all the time we're like, is the new episode out? Is the new episode out? Because we wanna watch it, it's cool, right? I, we have eager expectation to watch that. Now the Bible tells us as Christians, yeah, we need to have eager expectation for the real Jesus coming back, right? 
and that we go through life saying, man, is it gonna happen? Is it gonna happen? Is it gonna happen? Like these dudes were walking around following Paul, seeing if he was gonna drop dead. Or like we eagerly wait for, you know, oh man, can you get through those um, troops returning home videos that they have of like, you know, they're surprising their kids at home or stuff like that. Everybody's crying, ah. right? But we, like, we wanna have that eager expectation that our Lord who loves us so much, who gave himself that we could be saved, who knit us together in our mother's wounds, our Lord who did all of that and indwells our hearts, he's coming back to gather us up and take us home into a place that he has prepared specifically for you and you and you and you and me. And we wanna be eagerly waiting for that. Verse seven, now in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. The Christian life is certainly unpredictable. It's always good to see how content and peaceable the Christians are in these stories. They allowed the Lord to transform them into people who weren't fussy or hypersensitive. If anybody was hypersensitive before Christianity, it was Saul of Tarsus, right? That guy was hypersensitive. He's not anymore. The Lord did this great transforming work. They weren't ill-tempered. They're able to adapt to their situation, whether it's good or bad, and remain satisfied in the Lord. Verse eight, Publius's father was in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him and praying, laid his hands on him, he healed him. Dr. Luke no doubt gave a diagnosis. This affliction wouldn't have necessarily been fatal, though dysentery can and does still kill some people in the world today. But it's a comfort to remember that God cares about all of our suffering, not just the fatal ones, right? He has compassion for the person with cancer and the person with the common cold, and we can lay both of those before him. We need not be shy to cast our cares upon him, even if they are relatively small cares. Something else you might take from this verse is that you never know what people might be facing that, you in, that you're interacting with. You don't know what's going on at home, right? That's what Publius sort of shows us. He's doing this big job. He's administrating this island. He's taking in all of these people. This is a big job. And meanwhile, his dad's at home in the house with a serious and frankly disgusting illness. King James calls it a bloody flux. I thought I would share that with you, <laughs> right? Anybody reading King James tonight? No? Okay, bloody flux, that's what he had, gross. You know, bloody flux is tough when you're, you got no indoor plumbing, right? You're in the first century and this dude has blood-filled diarrhea and he's just like mangled in pain. And like, and now 276 guys show up on the beach and you got to help them out. I mean, so this guy had a lot going on. So we want to be people who are compassionate and understanding and ready to represent Christ whether we're in a shanty on the beach or in the state house with the leading man, and just interact with people graciously because we don't know everything that they're dealing with. Verse nine, after this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Scholars point out that Luke, who is very precise with his word choice, used a different word for healed here. Rather than the one usually used for instantaneous healing, like he used the verse before, he used a different vocabulary word, one that often means therapy or received medical attention. And so as a physician, he was probably able to assist and render that service. And here we see that God uses not only the supernatural gifts he gives us, but also our natural abilities that have been offered to him. I mean, it's true that God doesn't need our intellect or our ability or, or, or our talent, but that doesn't mean he doesn't make use of any of those things when we give them to him, 
He absolutely does. Are you a doctor? Be a Christian doctor. Are you a poet? Be a Christian poet. Are you a builder? Be a Christian builder. What does that mean? Does that mean I can only write rhyming lines about Jesus or only build church buildings? No. It just means that you place all of yourself at your king's disposal and let him use you as he sees fit. And you recognize that whatever you do can be done unto the Lord and for the profit of his kingdom. Uh, And so great, great example for us here. Verse 10, so they heaped many honors on us. And when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. What an amazing time on this little island. God invaded Malta in a sense, casting his servants onto the shore. And before long, you have people being healed and God's love defining relationships and unity and honor among all sorts of people, both free and slave, powerful and incarcerated, rich and poor, barbarian and civilized. We cannot doubt that there were many saved as a result of Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and their ministry. Looking back using heaven's calculator, which we're able to do because we have the inspired word of God, was the difficulty and delay and hardship endured by Paul worth it for what they gained in Malta? Of course we think it was, of course. What's a, what's a little shipwreck and two weeks puking your guts out like, so that you could do all of this, right? On the other hand, this is not the kind of layover we'd pick for ourselves, but look at what the Lord wanted to do and look at what he can do even when so much is stacked against his people. They land on Malta with no supplies, no plan, a language barrier with the natives, snakes coming out of the woodwork. But because the Christians were in the will of God and were ready to do his work and did all that they did as unto the Lord, we see that impossibly wonderful things can happen and did happen. This was the most ministry Paul had done in years, in years. What a great opportunity. That's an inspiring thing. And along the way, we see these Christians avoiding pitfalls of frustration and resentment and anger and bitterness and fussiness and jealousy. And instead, through humility and contentment, we're able to bring honor and glory to God in the most far-fetched place as they trusted the Lord, spoke the truth, showed compassion, and followed their shepherd as they made their way to their final destination.